the January 6th committee's case against Trump. This committee will demand a full accounting to every American of the events of January 6th. So it is our obligation to seek Donald Trump's testimony. In a historic move, the January 6th committee I, 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 votes to subpoena former President Trump. Everybody on the floor is putting on tear gas masks to prepare for a breach. Releases dramatic, never before seen video. I was stunned by violence and uh, was stunned by the president's apparent indifference to the violence. And reveals testimony about Trump's actions in the days surrounding the attack. Plus, any future president inclined to attempt what Donald Trump did in 2020 has now learned not to install people who could stand in the way. The committee sounds the alarm over ongoing threats to American democracy. Do it! Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. On Thursday, in what is expected to be its last hearing before the midterm elections, the January 6th committee voted to subpoena former President Donald Trump. Moments before the unanimous decision, Vice Chair and Republican Liz Cheney explained the reasoning of lawmakers. We must seek the testimony under oath of January 6th central player. So this afternoon, I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump. After the vote, President Trump in an online post wrote, quote, why did they wait until the very end, the final moments of their last meeting? Because the committee is a total bust that has only served to further divide our country. Meanwhile, during the meeting, the committee revealed significant new evidence, including Trump aides testifying that Trump acknowledged he lost the 2020 election. Here's former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson describing Trump's angry reaction when the Supreme Court declined to hear his legal challenge to the election results. And the president said, said something to the effect of, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. We need to figure it out. I don't want people to know that we lost. The committee also showed new video featuring House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, former Vice President Mike Pence, and other lawmakers in leadership during the attack. Oh my gosh, they're just breaking windows, they're doing all, all kinds of, it's really that somebody, they said somebody was shot. It's just, it's just horrendous and all at the instigation of the President of the United States. Paul Irving, your Sergeant at Arms. We'll inform you that their best information is that they believe that uh, the House and the Senate will be able uh, to reconvene in roughly an hour. Still striking to see it again. Now, lawmakers also said there are lingering questions about what the, what the Secret Service knew about the violence and when. Joining me tonight to discuss this and more, Ested Herndon, national political reporter for The New York Times and host of the podcast, The Run-Up. Nicholas Wu, congressional reporter for Politico. And joining me here in studio, Dan Balls, chief correspondent at The Washington Post and Ali Vitale, congressional correspondent for NBC News. Ali, I'm going to go to you first because you broke the news that former President Trump was going to be subpoenaed by the committee. The big question I have is why are they doing this right now, given that they've been investigating this and talking to people for months? 
And we've been asking them this question on the Hill for months. The idea, even once it was clear throughout the first few hearings this summer, that they were driving at the former president in each of the segments that they were doing. And the question was, OK, what happens when you successfully convince people that Trump had a role to play here? Now, at least clearly, we have at least one of their answers to it, which is that they're subpoenaing the former president, trying to show the country that they are doing all they can to at least talk to the former president and let him rebut some of these things. But also, it also gives us a sense that maybe that if they do go the criminal referral route, that th that will also be a unanimous decision. But look, Liz Cheney responded to this question of why wait so long today. In a speech, she said, we wanted to make sure that we laid out for everybody all of the evidence that we had against Trump. And certainly over nine hearings this year, they did that. And now we see the culmination of it. And do we think he's going to show up? <laughs> I don't think it's likely. <laughs> but look, this is something that the members have all been aware of. In conversations that I've been having with them, as they've been talking as a group, they've said, we know that it's a very different ask to make of Mike Pence, who said that he would likely consider coming forward with a subpoena. And it's a very different ask to make of Donald Trump, who is a master at running out the clock, at tying things like this up in court. And certainly, you even saw in the 14-page letter that he sent to the committee today, there's no yes or no in there. There are a lot of false claims, a lot of things that he's been saying on the campaign trail, and a lot of pictures of crowds. But beyond that, no yes or no on whether he's going to comply with the subpoena. And Nicholas, you're obviously running around the Hill getting all this information, too. What is your sense of former President Trump's uh, in his sort of interest, if at all, in coming before this committee and how far the committee is willing to go? I should note, President Trump is, or former President Trump, he's going off saying that these are angry, that this is a witch hunt. So I wonder what your sense is of your reporting. Well, there's certainly some skepticism on the committee that the former president would ever actually come in to testify. Uh, you know, recall that Congress has called the former president um, to come and testify before, during the Russia investigation, uh, during his impeachment, right after January 6th. Uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, who, who was a manager on that impeachment and is on this committee now, you know, mentioned um, yesterday on CNN that, uh, you know, he called Trump to testify then. And, and, you know, they're hoping for a different response now. But I think um, members of the committee are somewhat holding their breath. At the same time, uh, there's always a possibility that Trump could kind of go rogue here in some ways and decide that actually, yes, I do want to come and talk to the committee and lay out his side of the story. He's clearly someone who's been watching these hearings so far. He's someone who you know, has an interest in uh, uh, putting out his own side of it, even if it, you know, it does involve all of these falsehoods and, and false equivalencies. Um, and so it kind of remains to be seen how that's going to play out. Uh, it's worth noting that the committee's subpoena for his testimony, it's unclear if that's actually um, gone out to the former president yet or not. And so I think once we, we, we get a, a look at what exactly the subpoena asks for, I think this is where we'll start to see the haggling between the committee and the former president if it comes to that. And Dan, there are some who see this committee's subpoena as a political move. What do you make of the politics and the motivations here? Well, it is a political move in some ways. It was a theatrical move in some ways, although Donald Trump uh, loves theater, and so he probably in some ways should have appreciated that this was coming at him. Um, I don't think there's any realistic chance that he's going to appear, uh, in part because he would be under oath, um, and that would be a very, very difficult situation for him to answer a lot of questions under oath. So the prospect of that is, I would say, mostly nil. I think the value of this is for the committee to be able to say, look, we made an effort. Um, but it also is a little bit of a, of a, you know, kind of calling his bluff, if you will. Um, and so I think, I think we all kind of know where this ends, that he'll run out the clock, as Ali said. Um, they won't get his testimony, but they will have made the effort. 
symbolically at least, and leave it at that. And as Dead, it seems like there is a little bit of a dare from the committee, but your paper, The New York Times, is reporting that former President Trump has been telling aides that maybe he favors testifying. What's your sense of the politics here, since I know that that's what you're deeply covering? What are the benefits for former President Trump if he were to sort of come in and talk to the committee? Yeah, and that and that reporting was interesting. It, it, our colleagues noted that that President Trump and those around him don't necessarily want to immediately reject that subpoena, but because of that love of theatrics, as Dan mentioned, or or his history of using television to really bolster his political brand, that there might be some openness. I, I think because of that that what what he mentions about being under oath, that we'll, we should see that as a kind of long shot. But it is notable that there wasn't an immediate rejection. The politics are really interesting. I mean. President Trump has really created a base that is driven by grievance. And so, in him lashing out against that January 6th committee, he once again tries to play that card to really rile up the Republican base ahead of the midterms. The January 6th committee has done a, a, a kind of uh, uh, all-encompassing job of laying out the factual evidence for what we know was uh, was unprecedented actions the president took to really strike at the heart of democracy and on, on that day and the days following. But what he is betting is that the Republican base is so behind him that, that they will make his grievances their own and, and, and use this as a motivating factor come November. I, I don't think that's out of the question. We've seen Republicans rally around him before, and so I don't think we should totally discount that. We definitely shouldn't discount that. And Ali, what's your sense of criminal referrals here? Liz Cheney was asked about whether former President Trump broke the, wall, the law, and she said, quote, no question about the answer. She also said the committee has quote, the responsibility to make decisions about criminal referrals. She was careful to say she didn't want to get in front of the committee, but what's your sense of sort of how far the committee is willing to take this and whether or not there might be criminal referrals coming out of this? Look, they can do it. It doesn't really matter in terms of what criminal proceedings can actually proceed from that because Congress doesn't do that. That's the job of the Department of Justice. And clearly, during the summer, there was a sense from the committee, a real frustration that DOJ had not done a lot of their homework. It's clear now where we are in October that DOJ has really ramped up the investigations that they're doing and investigations with an S because there are multiple of them. Now at this point, the committee may do a criminal referral just to show again that they are there to hold the former president accountable. But you also see the committee shifting as they turn towards their final report to sort of functioning on dual planes. Yes, they want to hold Trump accountable, but they also want to shore up the larger system. You heard Liz Cheney there in your introduction talking about the fact that democracy was upheld because you had good faith actors who were willing to keep it intact. That might not be the case next time. And as I've been talking with members, that's what their final recommendations are really going to focus on. Yes, it's the Electoral Count Act reform that Zoe Lofgren and Liz Cheney have put forward in the House. Of course, there's a complementary Senate bill that has a few key differences, but there's still optimism that ultimately it'll, it'll get passed. But at the same time, those are the two fields that they're working on. It's Trump, but also they don't want anyone else to come around and take advantage of this system the next time around. And Dan, I mean, it's, it's so striking when you hear Liz Cheney say a key lesson of our investigation is that the systems only hold, as Ali just said, because there were good people in place there. What do you make of that, given the fact that Trump is still out there, still at the helm of the GOP? This is still a clear, at least in some minds, a clear and present danger and of historic proportions in a lot of people's minds. Well, and I think, I think you're right about that. And I think when you couple that with the fact that there are hundreds of Republican candidates on the ballot this fall who are election deniers in one form or another, you can see the confluence of 
Donald Trump continuing to push the big lie and people who believe that lie potentially being in a position to influence future elections. And I think that that is a very worrisome prospect for anybody who cares seriously about the state of democracy. And Nicholas, uh, you know, going back to what happened during the hearing, when, as Dan is talking about the state of democracy, we talked about the Roger Stone video last week because it was put out before the hearing. But to hear Roger Stone say, F voting with a curse word, we're just going to go straight to violence. What more did we hear about and what did we learn about the sort of the premeditated planning long before November 2020 um, of, of Trump and the people around him when it came to sort of saying that this election was rigged and stolen? The Stone documentary and, and the footage we saw there was all part of the committee's uh, uh, effort to show that, yes, the, this this um, this plan, this plot to try to contest the election results, to, to overturn the will of the voters, uh, ha was in the works even before Election Day. We saw the committee show um, this, this memo from Tom Fitton, the head of the conservative group Judicial Watch, uh, sending in uh, you know, proposed language to the president about how he should just declare victory. And, and that's what we saw him do on Election Day, when it had not necessarily been called yet, but we saw Trump go out there and say that he had won the election falsely. And, and, and this is part of the committee's um, attempt to draw a through line, really, in the ways to, to, to show how you know, this was a premeditated plot um, that, was, that ran from Election Day up through January 6th, and that the threat continues up through the present day. And instead, uh, thinking about the, the threat, part of what I think was striking about this hearing is that you heard some White House aides, we played Cassidy Hutchinson saying, Trump said to people, multiple people, I lost, I'm embarrassed, I don't want this to be here, I lost, I'm angry, look at this guy on TV, I, don't, I can't believe I lost to him. What is that, what's the politics of that? What's the, what's the sort of significance of that when we think about the fact that Trump is continuing to lie about this? Yeah, I mean, this has been a, a, a question from some. I mean, it's kind of a distinction without the difference. Whether Trump truly believed uh, the election was stolen or not, he certainly acted in a way uh, that, call, that, that, that really spoke and motivated his supporters to do what they did on January 6th. But it has been a curiosity about whether the former president actually believed that the election was stolen and, and was speaking what, he, what, what, what was a core belief, or whether this was something he was acting on to cover up the fact that he, uh, that he lost. Uh, and if we are to believe that testimony, as we've seen from the January 6th committee, it would be the latter, that he was acknowledging that he lost, but was still going out to push those, uh, those falsehoods, those lies about the election. That has had real human consequences, not only in January 6th, but as we have seen uh, across the country, I mean, it is not just on the governor level we, uh, we see these election deniers, at the secretary of state level, uh, uh, poll watchers being intimidated, the apparatus of what President Trump has inspired with his false election claims is massive. And we cannot overstate, really, uh, uh, how those false claims have really motivated an anti-democratic wing within the Republican Party. Uh, uh, this is true across the country, but particularly in some swing states and places like Arizona, where we see those election deniers who were successful in the primary. And as, and as instead, Dan is talking about sort of not being, not overstating the, the, the real impact of this and the consequences, I think it's also not hard to, to, to I think, overstate the, the, the real worry and shock that was going on in that building, because the expectations were so high for this hearing. What new video are we going to see, I thought to myself, that's going to really move me? And then I see Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence, and I got goosebumps watching them really taking the helm of the country and saying, we got to figure this out. What did you make of that of those moments? Th those, were, those were startling and revealing uh, 
videos that we saw yesterday. And, and I think it did take us inside in that, in that chamber or where they were being held in a way that we hadn't really thought much about. We knew they were sequestered, but we didn't really know kind of what was going on other than that some were pleading for help. But to see the interaction, and particularly between the speaker and the, and the former vice president, um, basically united in their desire to get back and finish the job as quickly as they possibly could. I was struck by another thing, uh, Yamish, and that is uh, the strength of Speaker Pelosi. Um, when, you, when you look at the assembled leadership of the Congress and on the phone, uh, the President of the Senate and, and Vice President Pence, um, you see her, her temperament, uh, her determination, her drive, and in some ways the deference that others pay to her. I think it was revealing in that way as to how she stands in that hierarchy of leadership. Yeah. Allie, jump in here. Of course, you wrote the book on women <laughs> and leaders, so I want to yeah. get your sense, especially because you co you're covering her every day. Yeah, I mean, I think in part because I wrote the book on women and the presidency, I got a few text messages as that video was airing saying, are you sure we've never had a female president? And of course, that still remains a history that we have not yet made. But at the same time, you watched the way that Speaker Pelosi, alongside these Republican and Democratic leaders, were really filling the void that Donald Trump had left by his complete and utter inaction around what was happening on Capitol Hill. And that vacuum, yes, allows us to speak to the deference and the respect that Speaker Pelosi commands on Capitol Hill, but also just the fact that in this moment of chaos, when we ask voters usually to consider who's a good president, we ask them to think about the commander-in-chief test, who you want at the helm when there is chaos reigning in the world, and, and in this case, in our country. And it's clear that President Trump left that vacuum to be filled by several of the people in the line of succession to the presidency, including his own vice president, including the Speaker of the House, and to watch them work in bipartisan fashion. Politics was not present that day. In the name of a peaceful transfer of power, that video was so striking for so many reasons, but that's one of the first things that I thought of. I, it was certainly striking. And the other thing that is another sort of part of this hearing, Nicholas, is the Secret Service. It played a big role. There were all sorts of images attached to it. Pete Aguilar is now saying that they're going to be recalling witnesses, the lawmakers, to look into possible obstruction of justice. What more do we know about the Secret Service and what lawmakers are looking into there? Well, this is all part of a huge tranche of information that the Secret Service uh, had turned over to the committee fairly recently. We know that they got over a million different records from the Secret Service. That's emails, that's messages, uh, that's other random uh, you know, electronic documents. And the committee is still going through them now, but they were able to use a lot of that to great effect during yesterday's hearing, uh, presenting these messages from Secret Service uh, uh, agents and officials, you know, warning of the potential for violence on January 6th. And, and we even got as granular uh, in detail as, as to see messages from agents uh, concerned for Mike Pence's safety after Trump posted that tweet on January 6th attacking the vice president. And so this is one of the large um, unexplored areas of inquiry for the select committee and other congressional committees from here on out. The Secret Service had, had long been uh, a subject of skepticism for the select committee after you know, we learned that there was this mass deletion of text messages that the Secret Service uh, said was due to a tech upgrade. And, 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 and that you had those two key witnesses that were um, that, that the committee had cast some doubt on, uh, uh, Tony Ornato and Bobby Engel. And so this is something that could be a remaining avenue of exploration for the committee, even as they're winding down and, and writing this final report. And I want to ask some more about the midterms, but really quickly, Ali, talking about unexplored, Ginny Thomas, she wasn't part of the hearing. Yeah. 
anything about that that we know? Well, look, even on Capitol Hill, while they were doing that deposition, there happened to be House votes, which was great for us. But we were asking about what they were hearing from them at that point. And really, the only news that Benny Thompson gave to us was that Ginny Thomas was telling them that she still believed that the election was stolen. I do think the other interesting thing here, when you're talking about the Secret Service, is my colleague Julia Ainsley and I reported exclusively for NBC News Tonight that they are asking, the Sixth Committee has asked the Secret Service for any communications that they may have had with members of the Oath Keepers. This came after one of the cases in federal court regarding the head of the Oath Keepers, someone testified that he might have been in touch with someone in the Secret Service. Now the January 6th committee is exploring that, in part after we were asking them what the level of cooperation had been from the Secret Service around that. But again, as they're writing their final report, they're still fact-gathering. And as said, we talk about all this, we talk about the hearing. Benny Thompson said he was hoping people who were skeptical would tune in. What's your sense of how much this is going to make a difference, if at all, in the midterms, is there any impact at all here? Yeah, I mean, the, the committee has certainly achieved its goal of creating a, a historical record about the actions of Republicans and former President Trump on the 6th. But if there was a political goal to really shift the conversation of the midterms, we have not seen that really cut through in a big way. I think uh, uh, some, some, some key signs here are that the endangered Democrats themselves are not really zeroing in on the actions of the committee or the hearing yesterday as a key campaign talking point. We have seen a dry fundraising in some senses, but this is still a midterm election that's centered around questions of the economy uh, uh, and, and more policy issues, uh, uh, centered around people's feelings about President Biden and the Supreme Court's actions on abortion. And so we have not really seen the January 6th committee cut through fully, but Democrats are certainly making the argument that Republicans are not good stewards of democracy, and that itself is a reason to reject them. The problem that they have is that this is not just a falsehood about the election that was dictated by Donald Trump to his supporters, but one that many supporters believe alongside the president. And so as we have seen in those primaries and as we look forward toward the midterms, it is right that democracy is on the ballot in a lot of these cases. However, for a lot of people, they already have deep ingrained questions that started before 2020 and are continuing. And so uh, the, the, there's a real open question on which the way this lands come November. And in about a minute, can you just talk a little bit about Herschel Walker, Georgia? There's obviously a, a debate going on. I know you talked to Stacey Abrams. Talk about the challenges that Democrats and Republicans are facing. Yeah, Georgia's really emerged again as a key state for us. I think it's changed a little from 2020 when you really saw those core progressive constituencies power uh, a, a lot of the Democratic narrative coming from that flip. Right now, we're really seeing moderate Republicans drive those races. Uh, uh, Raphael Warnock, the incumbent Democratic senator, has fared better with them, partially because uh, uh, we believe of some of those scandals that are hurting his opponent. And that's allowed him to create a bigger lead than the Democratic uh, uh, gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams. However, Republicans have rallied around Herschel Walker, and they really feel like if they align the Republican base with those moderate Republicans, that he can ride to a win on the yeah. coattails of Governor Brian Kemp. That's going to be what we can watch. How many of those moderate Republicans come over to Walker's side? And Dan, President Biden sat down for an interview with Jake Tapper, CNN's Jake Tapper. Um, he's trying to make the case along Democrats. What, what's, the, what your, what's your sense of the impact President Biden might be able to have in this? We have about a minute left. Well, his, his impact is twofold. One is he's out trying to raise a lot of money. Um, that, that's the principal effect he's having. 
The second effect is, is that he threatens to drag down Democratic candidates. And what we're seeing in many states is Democratic candidates outperforming the president's approval ratings by a significant margin. Um, but that is a real drag that they will have to carry on, on their shoulders through November. And I think he's, he's going to try to continue to put the focus on uh, what he calls the MAGA Republicans. And that that has some resonance with people. I think that when we go back and look at this impact of the January 6th committee, one of the things that it has done, along with the election deniers who have won primaries, is it has reminded some voters of the radicalization of the Republican Party and the consequences of turning control of the House and maybe the Senate over to that party, which is now such a Trumpian party. So I think that's all part of the stew. And I think that the president's focus is going to be to try to keep reminding yeah. people of that. Yeah. Well, a lot to talk about. We'll definitely be watching it. Thank you to our panelists for joining us and for sharing your reporting. And before we go, tune in Saturday to PBS News Weekend. Anchor Jeff Bennett will report on two Georgia races that could help decide control of the U.S. Senate and the direction of the country. Thank you for joining us. Good night from Washington.